Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this, of course, is The Week in Doubt. So I mentioned in that relatively short episode I recently released that I wanted to do a long-form episode in which I offer my thoughts and reflections on this ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine, and not just in its most recent iteration, but also the history of the conflict in general, going back to, if not before, 1948, and the founding of the modern state of Israel. And I'm going to try to come at this from the angle of just being a human being who is disturbed and sickened both by the sickening acts of depravity and barbarism perpetrated by Hamas on October 7th, and also by the mountain of civilian casualties resulting from Israel's heavy-handed bombing campaign. When I first began thinking about doing this episode, which was probably two or three weeks ago now, the estimated death toll was thought to be about 11,000. That number has now climbed or risen to about 15,000, I believe, with the number of dead children now being around 6,000. And those numbers or estimates come from the Ministry of Health in Gaza, and Gaza, of course, being under the control of Hamas. So some might be tempted to cynically question those numbers, but apparently the United Nations, as well as um, certain humanitarian groups, and even the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, which are rivals of Hamas, all seem to agree that the Ministry of Health in Gaza has a pretty good track record of trying to honestly and accurately report civilian casualties. And I was curious about how many Hamas fighters have actually been killed. And I found a story from Reuters dated today, December 1st, that says 5,000 Hamas fighters a military officer who briefed reporters under or on condition of anonymity estimated roughly around 5,000 Hamas fighters have been killed, equivalent to roughly one-fifth of its overall strength. And it seems a little sketchy that they were insisting upon anonymity, but in fairness, perhaps it was just that they didn't know if it was their place to give out that kind of information and didn't want blowback. But... Even if that number is accurate, that would still be only a third of what civilian casualties are estimated to be. Once again, if the numbers from the health ministry are correct. And uh, of course, the numbers from the health ministry aren't going to be exact, but they're probably just meant to be a good approximation. And the reason why we shouldn't expect the numbers to be exact is because doctors and medical professionals are working under conditions of pure chaos, scribbling in notebooks, trying to keep track of all the dead coming in and out of hospitals, trying to keep track of all the bodies being pulled from rubble, etc. But once again, based on past conflicts, they do apparently have a pretty darn good track record of offering at least good approximate numbers. And I don't even know if it's worth mentioning, but I've heard some talking heads or content creators on YouTube nonchalantly acting like they don't get why people here in the States or the West are so concerned about what's going on over in the desert in the Middle East, as if it's strange or unnecessary to care. I think one of them was Sagar and Jetty from Breaking Points, I believe, and another was The Quartering. 
And I find this to be an alarmingly cold attitude. My response would be, as human beings, we should be moved or concerned whenever atrocities like those perpetrated by Hamas are committed, and we should be moved and concerned whenever we hear that civilians, mostly women and children, are being killed by the thousands. And I'm obviously referencing Israel's, once again, heavy-handed bombing campaign there. And I think we should also care because, in a sense, it directly affects us. In the aftermath or wake of Hamas's brutal attack on October 7th, and then Israel's, once again, heavy-handed response, there's been a rise in both incidents of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, and it also affects us directly because our government is funding the conflict. And when I say our government, I'm speaking as an American citizen. I believe we already give Israel, I think it's about $3.3 billion every year. And then according to an NPR article I read earlier, we've given them at least over $14 billion to help with their response to the October 7th attack, or attacks, plural. And speaking of the 7th, I can still remember discovering the story on the news as it was unfolding. And it's neither here nor there, but perhaps it helped etch the date into my mind a little more. But it was actually the day before my birthday, the 8th of uh, October. But I remember the surreal imagery on the news of Hamas paragliders in the distance gradually getting bigger as they approached uh, this music festival. I believe it was the Nova Music Festival. Some people characterized it as a rave. As a Gen Xer who was no stranger to things like raves and MDMA back in the day, I remember thinking to myself, hmm, that doesn't really sound like a rave. Where's the electronic music, etc.? But once again, neither here nor there. And I don't know whether it's true or not, but supposedly Hamas may not even have been aware that there was going to be this big event there. But of course, as we know, sadly, that didn't keep them from massacring, what was it, about 270 innocent young people who were attending this music festival, with many also being injured. And I'm trying to correct myself in real time here. I'm looking at a recent update, well, from November 18th. It's now December 3rd as I'm continuing to record this episode. And the Times of Israel, and to be honest, I'm not that familiar with their reporting, so I'm not sure how trustworthy of a source they are or not. And that's not dig at them. I honestly don't know. I tried to uh, do some cursory research on them, and it seems that they're thought of in general as being something of an independent-leaning outlet, or not leading, is <laughs> somewhat neutral. Uh, hopefully that's true. But they're now saying that the estimated death toll from the music festival as the investigation continues to unfold has been raised from about 260 or 270 to 360 deaths. So making up about a third of the approximate 1,200 deaths that resulted from Hamas's coordinated uh, terror attacks on the 7th. And please don't jump to conclusions and assume my characterization of Hamas as a terrorist group means I lack sympathy for the Palestinian people, because that couldn't be further from the truth, as will hopefully be demonstrated as we uh, go on. But we have to be honest and ready to condemn atrocities, no matter who they're being committed by, even if you think it's the person on the 
underdog side of the conflict. To me, there should be no room in this world, no excuse considered acceptable for the massacring, the butchering of innocent women and children, civilians, of taking infants and the elderly hostage. By definition, these are terrorist actions. The Oxford Dictionary defines terrorism as the unlawful use of violence and intimidation, especially against civilians, in the pursuit of political aims. And some people might be tempted to look at what's going on in Gaza and say, what about Israel killing thousands of civilians, including roughly 6,000 children, displacing was well over a million people and destroying thousands and thousands of homes. Can that be considered terrorism? Well, I think usually we think of terrorism as kind of like some kind of fringe militant group attacking the civilian population of a larger military power, like the dictionary definition states, with the goal of trying to force some political aim or result. And I also think we've just been conditioned to see it as when a smaller militant group targets the civilians of a larger power, we call it terrorism. When a superior military power bombs uh, the people of another country or whatever, we, we call it a military operation, even though the carnage is usually exponentially worse. And this isn't me trying to paint terrorists in a sympathetic light. I despise terrorists and terrorism. My point is that terrorism is despicable and should be denounced. And boy, is this episode going to get demonetized. Not that I make much on YouTube anyway. And when a larger military power unnecessarily kills civilians, that should be denounced as well. And I say unnecessarily killed, and there's the snag, you know, it leaves room for, say, the Israeli government to say, hey, we don't want to be killing anyone. We're trying to keep the numbers down. We have no choice. But once again, the magnitude of loss of civilian life is grotesque. As I said earlier, it's estimated to be about 15,000, the death toll, about 70-something percent of that thought to be women and children, about, once again, 6,000 dead children. When the number of the actual enemy, Hamas fighters you've killed, is a third of the number of civilians you've killed, something is wrong. Right. And so they can hide behind that excuse that, hey, this is just a necessary military response. We don't want to be doing this. We have to, you know. And yes, I think Israel does have a right to defend itself and to exist. And I will go into the history, the modern history of the founding of the modern state of Israel. But, you know, it's kind of like the toothpaste dissolved the tube. Israel is there now, and its people are there now. I would never imagine suggesting that, hey, the Israelis have to leave and give this entire, all this land back to the Palestinians. Now, realistically, ethically, there just has to be some way in which peaceful cohabitation can be established. I say realistically, I know much easier said than done. So yeah, I mean, Israel exists, its people exist, and like any state or any individual, they have a right to defend themselves. The question is, 
what level of, of military response is acceptable and appropriate and what level of military response or degree of military response is too far and is wreaking too much civilian carnage. And I think right now the world is kind of crying out and saying, there's 6,000 dead children, and that's just, never mind the women, innocent civilian men, etc. Never mind that 1.8 billion, it's thought, about 80% of Gaza's total population has been displaced. And I've watched debates on this topic in which the person on the pro-Israel side will try to argue that the blood isn't on Israel's hands. The blood of all those innocent Palestinians that Israel was quote-unquote forced to kill is on Hamas's hands, both for starting this most recent flare-up in this very old cyclical conflict and also for their habit of supposedly operating out of hospitals, etc. And my take would be that the blood of those innocent Palestinians is both on the hands of the Israeli government and on the hands of Hamas. I, I'm not a military strategist, so I'm not going to claim to have some exact alternative plan or approach they could have used. And I share their outrage over the 7th, but maybe they could have shown a little restraint and focused more on the safety of the hostages before they began a heavy-handed bombing campaign, or they could have, even if it was more dangerous for their soldiers, out of a concern for civilian life, they could have done more ground operations from the get-go. Once again, not a military strategist, but also, once again, when you have 6,000 dead children, was it somewhere in between 11, 12, 15,000 uh, dead civilians, uh, something's horrifically wrong. And, and the moral calculus doesn't really add up. And I've heard people on the pro-Israeli side, including, I think, Rabbi Shmuley Bateach. I think he used to be, a, be Michael Jackson's friend or spiritual advisor. But trying to draw a comparison to things like Dresden and Hiroshima and Nagasaki, like, you know, how come it's all right when, uh, when um, England or, uh, you know, when the UK or America does it, but not when Israel? I'm like, is that really the comparison you want to make? <laughs> like these um, horrific large scale losses of life that people are still morally grappling with to this day. I believe 25,000 civilians roughly were killed in the Allied bombing of Dresden. And it's sometimes referred to as the firebombing of Dresden because they use these incendiary bombs. And the heavy bombing with these incendiary devices created this incredible conflagration, what's known as a firestorm, a fire that's so intense that it creates and sustains its own wind system. There were stories about people's shoes literally melting into the hot asphalt and people not able to get away from the fire in time while trying to get, you know, out of their shoes. It must have seemed literally like hell on earth. And then I think surprisingly, at least it was a surprise to me, I learned that supposedly a good deal of the victims, if not the majority of them, once again, not a historian, so I'm not sure, but apparently died from suffocation, I think from um, all the carbon monoxide let off from the uh, the fires or the bombing. 
And I believe with Hiroshima or Hiroshima and Nagasaki, if you combine the death tolls, according to the original numbers from the 1940s, the combined death toll would be around 110,000. But I believe in the 1970s, the numbers were reworked and a new estimate was given, a higher estimate that put the combined death toll to over 200,000 people killed by the dropping of those atomic bombs. And as I mentioned earlier, these are incidents that people are still wrestling with morally and asking themselves whether these bombings were actually necessary. And I think it would be a lie by omission to not mention that apparently Dresden did have actual strategic value. It had an important rail system, and supposedly there were also a large number of factories there that were making military equipment, arms, supplies for the Germans. But on the other hand, it had a very large civilian population, and I believe there was even talk by some that perhaps it should be spared because of its, not only because of its large civilian population, but because of its historic or historical and cultural significance, such as how Kyoto had been spared in Japan. And I believe it's considered BS, but there was this notion that Churchill, at least in part, chose to, uh, bomb Dresden as a kind of revenge for the devastating bombing of Coventry, which I think was referred to as the Coventry Blitz. I think not, I don't know, is the Coventry Blitz considered a part of the Blitz at large? I don't know. The Blitz, of course, being a German bombing campaign against the UK. I think over 40,000 people were killed in the Blitz. And I think of England as this pleasant, idyllic, modern, prosperous place across the, the pond. And it's hard for me to imagine that not that long ago in history, there were German bombs raining down on it. It's crazy. And I'm sorry I'm going off on this tangent, but I think what I'm doing, once again, this is unscripted, is that I'm trying to explore the question of whether or not these horrific bombings were necessary and how that affects the using of them as a, a justification for what's going on in Gaza by people who are pro or trying to defend what Israel is doing right now. And to that point, to this day, it's still debated whether or not the bombing of Dresden, as hyperbolic as it might sound to some, might even be a war crime. And from what I've read, I don't know if it's true or not, apparently even Churchill himself may have had regrets or second thoughts about the bombing after the fact. And whether or not the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was necessary, that's another thing that's still debated to this day. The narrative I heard growing up was that it was necessary to end the war, and if the Allies had used conventional military tactics, going in on the ground, etc., that even more people would have ended up dead. So as horrific as it was, they were actually saving lives by dropping the bomb. And this is where I get a little confused. I've heard that, to the contrary, the Japanese were pretty much already getting ready to, and I'll put the word in quotes, surrender, because some people will use the word surrender. Other people will say that 
they were not getting ready to formally surrender, but they were getting ready to cease fighting a proud people. They, I think, you know, there was a technical difference that allowed them to save face. They didn't want to surrender, but they wanted to say, okay, we're going to stop fighting. And they were getting ready to discuss peace terms. I think one of which was the emperor would have to stay in power. And then I've heard people say that even after the bombs were dropped, it wasn't necessarily the bombs that eventually convinced them to formally surrender. Rather, it was more the fact that the Soviets had joined the fight against them and they were concerned about the advancing Soviet forces. And I honestly have no idea. Some people still say that it was the bombs that ended the war. And somehow <laughs> dropping these bombs that created a, a hell on earth, a living nightmare, um, was somehow the right thing to do. I still, even if you could convince me that the bombs ended the war and in the long term saved lives, I don't know how you look at that devastation. An entire city being turned into an apocalyptic hellscape. Shadows burned on walls. People vaporized, children with radiation burns all over their bodies, radiation poisoning, the effects of which linger for generations. I don't know how you look at that and go, yep, in the long run, that was the moral thing to do. But back to people like Shmuley and others using, you know, the atomic bombing of Japan and Dresden as a way to try to justify what's going on with Israel and Gaza. Once again, is that really what you want to use as a justification? These other examples of the horrific, possibly unnecessary loss of massive amounts of human life. And for context, I've been watching a lot of debates. Piers Morgan has been hosting on his uh, nightly show, and he's had Rabbi Shmuley on there a couple of times. He also had Jank on once, and also his nephew, Hassan. He actually may have had Jank on twice, and Jank actually debated Shmuley. But I remember Shmuley saying once, that's a fun word, Shmuley, her name, that the deaths Israel has caused in Gaza during this most recent conflict is just a little fraction of what the Allies did say in Dresden or Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And in fairness to Shmuley, that was uh, at least two weeks ago, maybe more, maybe three. I don't know the way time flies. But now the death toll is up to 15,000. Dresden was 25,000. So, I mean, if those numbers keep growing, man. You're going to be in Dresden territory soon. And once again, this is a, the conflict between Palestine and Israel. This is an old conflict, and it's cyclical. But there's usually certain events that trigger an outbreak in hostilities. In this case, it was Hamas's attacks, coordinated attacks on, on October the 7th. And without a doubt, if Hamas hadn't perpetrated these horrific attacks we wouldn't be where we are right now, which has left me wondering to myself and probably a lot of others too, you know, since this happened, 
Why did Hamas choose to do this when they must have known how heavy-handed Israel's response would be and how many innocent Palestinian lives it would cost. And I've heard a number of proposed theories or explanations for why Hamas may have chosen this moment, October 7th, to attack, because apparently they had been planning on doing an attack like this, or attacks plural. Uh, Once again, these were coordinated attacks for up to two years. They may have begun planning to uh, up to two years ago. One theory is that because the U.S. has been pushing for a normalization of relations between Israel and its Arab neighbors, and I believe there had been talks that were supposed to take place between Israel and Saudi Arabia, and so Hamas may have chosen to act now or, you know, on the 7th in an attempt to derail those talks, And it's well known that Iran funds Hamas heavily. I believe they give them millions upon millions of dollars a year, and they also provide them with uh, material resources and and military training. But I don't think there's any evidence that they had a direct role in the October 7th attacks. I could be wrong, but that's my layman's understanding from my cursory reading on the subject. I believe the White House or Biden, for what it's worth, characterized them as being complicit because of the training and funding they supply to Hamas. But at this moment, I don't think there's necessarily any evidence that they, Iran, were directly involved in the planning of the attacks. And I think some of the reasons Hamas themselves have stated were things that Palestinians in general were upset about like the blockade, uh, the expansion of settlements in the West Bank, etc., that kind of thing. And I think another factor is that there is kind of a death cult mentality to Hamas. And I remember reading about how this may have just been about trying to strike as big a blow as possible against Israel and showing Israel and the world what they're capable of. And they may even have wanted as big a military response from Israel as possible. And any innocent Palestinians who died in that inevitable military retaliation, well, hey, they're martyrs now, even if that's not necessarily what those innocent people who lost their lives in the Israeli bombings may have wanted. They don't seem to have gotten a say in it. And the number or percent varies depending on the specific poll or study and when it was conducted. But I was just curious, and I looked at a recent Wall Street Journal article, it was dated from two days ago, and it suggests that support among Gazans for Hamas is 40%, roughly. So not everyone in Gaza supports Hamas, and even if they do, they may not have wanted Hamas to go to such extremes. And by that, I mean the coordinated attacks and atrocities they carried out on October 7th. And I'm guessing that not only might some Gazans take issue with Hamas's recent attacks on moral grounds, but at the least, they probably would have 
question the wisdom of the attacks because they didn't want to end up with Israeli bombs raining down on them like what's going on now. And it should also be noted that Gaza has one of the world's youngest populations, I believe almost half, something like 47 point something percent of Gazans are under the age of 18. And Hamas was voted into power back in 2006, and there hasn't been an election since. So that means at least probably half of Gazans weren't even born yet or were too young to remember when Hamas was elected. And I think that should be kept in mind when you hear people trying to conflate all Gazans with Hamas or hold all Gazans responsible for the actions of Hamas. And that being said, it might seem a strange place in the episode to return to the horrors of October 7th after trying to do my best, I think, to be even-handed. But I feel like the events of October 7th had such a big effect on me as, you know, someone here in the West just watching all of this unfold on the news. And I feel kind of strange saying that, oh, it had an effect on me, when once again I'm removed from the conflict, living in relative safety here in the U.S., and I can't even begin to imagine what the victims, the hostages, uh, their families, what, they're, what they've been going through and are still going through. But nevertheless, it did just as a human being, you know, watching this footage and hearing these stories, it really did affect me. So if I return back to when I'm first watching all this unfold in the news and on social media, I remember some of the video really hit me hard and just stayed with me. And I think it's the same with a lot of people. There were these clips that went viral because they were so heartbreaking and so harrowing to watch. I remember there was one uh, of a young woman by the name of Noah Argamani, I think it is. Uh, just this beautiful young Israeli woman. And she's on the back of a motorcycle put there by Hamas militants. And she's crying and reaching out for her boyfriend who's being taken away from her in another direction. And I guess apparently what she was yelling was, please don't kill us. And her and her boyfriend uh, were separated and taken off to Gaza. And I think the silver lining, the good news is, it's thought that she's still alive. I think she hasn't been released yet. I really hope with all my heart she's still alive and her boyfriend too. But that was just really heartbreaking video to watch. And another video clip that really deeply affected me and stayed with me, perhaps more than any of the other footage I've seen come out of this conflict, and I should actually correct myself and say that affected me the most out of the initial footage coming out of the October 7th attacks, because there's a lot of harrowing and heartbreaking and deeply disturbing imagery and videos coming out of Gaza as well, including grieving mothers, fathers, grandparents, cradling the bodies of dead toddlers and infants. And speaking of that, while I've been recording this episode over the last few days, 
there's actually been this development where you have incidents of people trying to suggest that images of dead Gazan children and babies, that they aren't real, they're fake and they're dolls. And they then had to backtrack that when uncensored versions of the images were released and they were called out because they were not dolls. They were real dead children. And there's something, and I think we're almost deeply wired to respond to it, to recognize corpses, but there's something so uncanny and disturbing about the face of a corpse. If anyone's ever gone to an open casket funeral or been in the unfortunate situation where they have to see uh, a dead body or the body of a dead loved one they discovered, or, yeah, this is very dark, I know, uh, there's just, and I think even Hollywood has trouble recreating it, and I'm not talking about zombies and that type of thing. I'm talking about the uncanny look on the face of a recently deceased body where the person is no longer there, the light's gone out. There's that eerie stillness, the changes in pallor, etc., and yeah, once again, I think it's something that's hard to fake. And you can tell these are dead children. And so there's grotesque accusations that the grieving parents are crisis actors. Where are they getting these actors that are like better than Brad Pitt or what, you know? Um, these, uh, you know, where are they getting a grieving Palestinian grandfather from central casting and dropping him and got, you know, give me a break. And the disgusting hashtag Pallywood is taken off, kind of like a play on Hollywood or Bollywood, suggesting that Gaza is manufacturing all these videos. And it seems like a bit of projection to me, because since this has all been going down, there's been a number of videos from, you know, pro-Israeli individuals that have been debunked. Like, famously, there was one where I think it was a young Israeli woman pretends to be a young Palestinian doctor and not a great actor either, and pretending like she's all scared and has to get ready to evacuate the hospital. And there was that video of IDF soldiers in a hospital trying to show the evidence that Hamas had been working out of there, which I have no problem believing that Hamas may or may not be operating out of hospitals or other civilian areas. They don't seem to have a very high regard for innocent Palestinian life. It should also be mentioned that Gaza is so densely populated that almost anywhere that you fight out of is going to be, you know, a civilian area. But do they intentionally operate out of hospitals, etc., because they hope the enemy will have some regard for civilian life and be less likely to attack or target those areas. Uh, I'm willing to believe that. But the Israeli government and military doesn't seem to be showing much regard for civilian life right now, so I'm not sure how much of a an effective strategy that will prove to be in the end. And I'm not sure if this is true or not. I'm not a military tactician. I'm not an expert on this conflict. But I've heard some people say that Hamas tends to operate out of the tunnels or hide in the tunnels below Gaza. And so when you're just bombing the holy hell out of the surface, all you're doing is leveling the city and displacing and killing civilians. 
or that's mostly what you're doing, I'm sure there have been some Hamas targets that were above ground. But anyway, the IDF released this video where they were once again showing evidence from inside a hospital that uh, Hamas had supposedly been working out of. And they were pointing to this document that was supposed to be kind of damning or incriminating evidence against Hamas. And people who could actually read Arabic pointed out that, dude, that's just a calendar. And those aren't a list of names. They're the days of the week. But to get back to that video from the 7th I was going to talk about, I believe it was either released or circulating the very first day or maybe within the first few days following the coordinated attacks, you know, on the music festival and the various kibbutzim. But there's footage or video of this, uh, another just beautiful young woman, not like how attractive they are should matter. You know, human life is human life. But she really was. She was just this beautiful young woman. I believe she was a, uh, or yeah, was a dual citizen, uh, both a German and, uh, she held both German and Israeli citizenship. And her name was Shani or, or Shani, I think Shani Luke. <sighs> wow. And, and I think at first it was erroneously reported that she was 30 years old. I believe she was only 22 years old. And she had been attending the Nova Music Festival or rave. And she was one of the people abducted, taken hostage from the event. And you may have heard, like me, early on in the wake of the October 7th attacks, maybe as early as the first day, once again, I'm not sure, that women were being paraded through Gaza. And I think these claims come from her specific case, unless there's other examples. But I've been following this conflict in the news coming out of it pretty closely, and hers is the only story I know of that kind of matches that, uh, that scenario. And when people say paraded through Gaza, maybe you're tempted to imagine someone being, you know, hands tied behind their back, being walked through the streets or something. But no, and it's really horrible. Her body, be it unconscious or as horrible as it is to say at that moment, possibly, most likely deceased, her body was stripped down basically, I think, to her underwear. She was practically, uh, practically stripped naked. And her body not moving is in the back of this dirty pickup truck with Hamas militants casually resting their dirty sandaled feet on her as if she's uh, a hunting trophy they had bagged or something like that or a piece of furniture and they're yelling Alu Akbar you know God is great which is such a perverse scenario to me you know to treat someone with such an appalling lack of humanity someone who might very well be dead, obviously, even if they're just unconscious, they've been stripped, mistreated, and you're resting your feet on them like their furniture while yelling, God is great. And then I remember one of the militants seated in the back of the truck, in the bed of the truck with her body, kind of lifting her head up by the hair as if to gawk at her face for a moment and letting her head drop back down. At least one person from the crowd 
coming up and spitting on her. I think it was a young male. There may have been more than one spitting on her. Just absolutely horrible. Now, I have to admit, the sight got my blood boiling. And in that moment, I remember I was thinking, like, I want everyone involved in these atrocities just wiped out. Get rid of them. Bob them. You know, I, I was filled with just anger and hate. And I'm not even... Jewish or Israeli. I don't feel like I have any political allegiance to Israel. Nothing like that. Just as a human being, witnessing another human being being devalued like that and, and just treated like, like garbage, like a hunting trophy. Uh, this young woman stripped and being used as a footrest and spit on. In that moment, you probably could have talked me into some kind of heavy-handed retaliation. And don't get me wrong, I think justice would be anyone who is involved in committing those atrocities and the leadership of Hamas all being either captured, killed, put on trial, locked away for life, whatever, absolutely. But that type of initial desire for revenge... And that initial flare-up of emotion, you know, is what can lead to the perpetuation of this cycle of violence and to dead, innocent civilians. You know, no matter how horrific these atrocities were that were committed on October 7th, that does not justify thousands upon thousands of dead civilians, including, as I've repeated a few times now, 6,000 dead children. You know, you're killing the innocent in an attempt to avenge the innocent. You're committing atrocities in an attempt to avenge atrocities. And it kind of reminds me of the hackneyed Nietzsche or Nietzsche saying, beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster, I think uh, it goes. But that's presuming, perhaps somewhat generously, that the goal of Netanyahu and the Israeli military actually is to seek justice for what happened on October 7th and to eradicate or remove Hamas from power and not what some fear that their goal may be just the mass displacement of the Gazan people, perhaps even trying to force them into Egypt. And I don't know if I should touch on it now or wait till I get into the history, but there's an Arab word, Nakba, which, uh, which means catastrophe, and it refers to the mass displacement of about 700,000 Palestinian Arabs back around the founding of, uh, of the modern state of Israel. But I've been hearing some people even refer to this mass displacement that's going on in Gaza right now as a second Nakba, or Nakba. Hopefully I'm not butchering that. But we'll revisit that when I do eventually get into the history of the founding of the modern state of Israel. And I know it might seem like I'm biased at times, say in favor of the Palestinian people, but what I am, and I'm hoping it comes through, is I'm biased against human suffering, and I'm biased against inflicting atrocities on any innocent person or human beings in general. I'm outraged by the thousands of dead civilians in Gaza, and once again, including about 6,000 dead children. And I heard Kyle Kalinske say earlier, it's now 
December 6th, as I'm continuing to record this episode, and he was giving a number that was close to 19,000 or 20,000 dead and about 8,000 dead children. And I've heard that elsewhere too, but when I look it up for myself, I'm still saying some sources giving around 15,000 dead, 6,000 children. But I'm outraged by the bombing of Gazan civilians, especially at such a large horrific scale. And I'm also outraged and sickened, as I said earlier, by the atrocities visited upon innocent Israelis on October 7th. And speaking of that, and I apologize for getting sidetracked once again, I want to return to the story of, or the case of Shani Luke. Some had been hoping or speculating that she may have only been unconscious. And once again, this is the uh, Israeli German girl who ended up in the um, back of the pickup truck being paraded through Gaza. But yeah, some had been hoping or speculating, including myself, that she may have only have been unconscious. But people had pointed out that, and not to get too graphic, that her legs seemed to be bent in a very unnatural way. I happen to have seen pictures, still images, that were very high res, and I don't know if they were taken earlier, maybe before, you know, somewhere in between her being taken from the site of the music festival and being brought to Gaza, because the scenery was different. It was more like an open field as opposed to the streets of Gaza, like you see in the video. It looked like the tailgate to the pickup truck was open and her legs were kind of on it or hanging over it. I'm working from memory. And so the feeling I get, you know, I'm wondering if at some point they wanted to close the tailgate. They forced her body inside the truck and closed it. And she may have already been deceased at the time and her legs got bent in an unnatural way, like you see in the video later, that wouldn't happen with a living person. Because like I said, how it's almost like we're wired to recognize that something's wrong and we're looking at a corpse and not a living person. I did get that airy feeling looking at her legs in in that video, the feeling that, once again, a living person's leg shouldn't be bent like that. I think some people speculated maybe they broke her legs, and maybe they did, but maybe it was post-mortem, because the odd thing is her legs are bent unnaturally, but there doesn't seem to be any bruising in the area where they're bent. And I'm not only am I not a historian, I'm not a forensics expert either, so I don't know if maybe if an injury, so to speak, takes place post-mortem, if you wouldn't necessarily get bruising because of the fact that blood is no longer circulating through the body. Once again, I have no idea. I'm not a doctor or a forensics expert. That's just a theory I have that perhaps her deceased body was forced into an unnatural position in the back of the truck. And you longtime listeners probably know how I operate. First, I record the audio-only version of the podcast, and then I add images for the YouTube version. And I've already decided I'm not going to show images of her body unless they're heavily, heavily pixelated or blurred. 
out of respect for her, her body, uh, for her family. So if you're looking at the YouTube version once it finally comes out, you probably won't be able to see what I'm talking about. Others had also noted that it appeared she may have suffered a gunshot wound to the head, and this is awful stuff to talk about, now, I know. Her grieving mother was given some hope that Shani might still be alive. She was told or shown that there might be video of Shani unconscious in the back of a car being driven around Gaza, and that she, at the time, you know, her mother was told that she may have been in a Gazan hospital being treated for a serious head wound. But on October the 30th, I think it was, Israeli officials stated that they had linked Shani's DNA to a skull fragment found at the site of the music festival attack. And it was claimed that the loss of that particular piece of skull is usually indicative of death, that if the injury a person sustains results in the dislodging of that part of the cranial anatomy, it probably means that the injury is so serious that they won't have survived, which is extremely sad. To me, the only silver lining is that, uh, if you even want to call it that, is that this means she was probably already deceased, before she was taken away from the site of the music festival and displayed in the back of that truck through Gaza like a trophy. It's very cold comfort, I know. I should also note, as horrible as the notion is, it was publicly stated by the Israeli president, I think, that she had been beheaded post-mortem after, you know, she was already dead. But it appears that was a false report. Apparently, the president's own spokesperson corrected the record, saying, and here's a quote, the fact that a significant part of her skull was found triggered fears that she had been decapitated. But I followed her story closely because, like I already said, that horrible image of her in the back of that truck disturbed me so deeply. And if things weren't already dark enough, one thing that I kept wondering, even though my mind didn't even want to go there, is, you know, does the fact that she had been stripped down to her underwear mean that she had been violated before her death? I hope against hope that wasn't the case. But there's been some awful stories and claims regarding what some of the female festival goers may have been subjected to. And it's often hard to separate propaganda from fact or rumor in situations like this, but there's claims some of the female attendees were violated, for lack of a more graphic word, or in the place of a more graphic word, before they were killed. I believe the event organizer and first responders described some of the dead female victims being either partially or completely naked. There was, a, there was recently a young woman who claimed to witness while in hiding a woman being shot dead while being violated. Uh, it's awful. You know, the perpetrator shooting her in the head while inside her. And I know I keep saying awful, but it is awful. It shocks the conscience. It's beyond words. And as much as I don't want to believe that this particular account took place or that women, girls may have been sexually violated in general on October the 7th, 
just based on all the eyewitness accounts and also what we know about the darker side of human nature. When you look back through human history, through the history of warfare, as disturbing as it is, and I'll just say the word and hopefully it doesn't, you know, trigger anyone, that's not my intention, but rape almost seems to go hand in hand with warfare. It happens all too often during military invasions, raids into enemy territory, even during military occupations. So as much as I don't want to believe it for the sake of the victims and their families, I imagine realistically there probably were cases of Hamas militants sexually violating women before killing them on October 7th. And there's actually been a developing story over the last couple of days. This is now December 6th, and I'm looking at a story dated today from CBS New York. And the title is Protesters Outside United Nations Highlight Sex Assaults of Women During an October 7th Hamas Attack in Israel. There's a highlighted portion here. On Wednesday, the UN Secretary General posted, There are numerous accounts of sexual violence during the abhorrent acts of terror by Hamas on 7 October that must be vigorously investigated and prosecuted. Then late Friday night, UN women said in part, We unequivocally condemn the brutal attacks by Hamas. We are alarmed by the numerous accounts of gender-based atrocities. This is why we have called for all accounts to be duly investigated and prosecuted. And I agree with that 100%. As I think I said earlier, I think anyone who's involved in those attacks or committing those atrocities on October 7th should be found and held accountable. Probably easier said than done. I imagine many of them returned to Gaza and just melted into the tunnels or into the population. And I know since early on, people have been skeptical about just how widespread were the cases of rape on October 7th or of uh, crimes of sexual violence. And some people have even doubted certain eyewitness accounts from first responders. And I have to admit, I feel really uncomfortable doubting or questioning the eyewitness accounts of first responders, people whose job it is, is to go into danger and treat the wounded in situations like this. Or there's a group, a, um, a volunteer group called Zaka, I think it is. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Z-A-K-A. And it's basically their job to go into situations like this or after the fact and to collect the bodies of the dead. And I have to correct myself. I just looked them up online. They don't just collect the dead. They also perform search and rescue or provide search and rescue services. And some of them um, are trained as paramedics. Or maybe all of them are trained as paramedics. I'm not sure, to be honest. And I just took a look at their official website. Yeah, they're a non-governmental volunteer-based group, and they respond to disasters, accidents, terror attacks, and provide emergency services and, uh, yes, collect the bodies of the dead. And like I said, for whatever reason, there were some people who were questioning certain eyewitness accounts regarding incidents of sexual violence. But I believe the number is 1,500. Apparently, there's been over 1,500 eyewitness reports of uh, acts.
acts of sexual violence during that um, October 7th attack on the music festival alone, I believe. There was also a disturbing eyewitness account from one of the kibbutzim that were also attacked on the 7th of a, a first responder apparently discovering the dead bodies of two young girls, I think young teenage girls, in a house. And it appeared that at least one of them had been violated before they were both killed. And there was an interview in the news or a story about, I don't know if she was a volunteer with Zaka, I forget, but a 60-year-old architect who was also a volunteer. And she talked about her own harrowing experience dealing with all these dead bodies and how they would un they were afraid to unzip the body bags because they weren't sure what they would find. And often it was young females who were either partially or completely naked, often their tops ripped apart, nothing where you know, completely stripped below the waist. Often either their genitals and or their faces were mutilated. And she would talk about how some of them would cry because they would see these mutilated, stripped bodies of young girls. And then they would catch a glimpse of these pretty pink or, you know, painted fingernails. And that would bring it home that this was a real human being, a young girl who had bothered to paint her nails, etc., and ended up in that state in a body bag. And also over the past couple of days, there was another eyewitness account that was similar to the one of the girl who said while she was in hiding, she saw um, another girl or a young woman be basically being, being executed, being shot dead while being violated. And I don't know if it was someone witnessing the demise of the same victim, but there was a guy, a young man who claimed to have seen basically a gang of men, a gang of Hamas militants having their way with a woman it ended the same way with them killing her. I think he said he saw another woman who resisted, who fought back while they were trying to strip her. And he claims that they then, one of them beheaded her with a shovel. And I don't know if this particular eyewitness account is true, but just the idea of it is absolutely horrific and mind-numbing. So yes, you never know for sure whether or not a certain eyewitness account may be true or not. And yes, it would seem that the IDF or Netanyahu's administration often doesn't give us, uh, you know, instill confidence in their honesty, shall we say. But that being said, I mean, we're talking about first responders, we're talking about over 1,500 eyewitness accounts, I think it's it's safe to say there were a number of incidents of sexual violence that took place on October 7th. And it very well may have been widespread. And what I wonder, and I think we heard suggestions to this effect early on, you know, was this the higher-ups of Hamas ordering this kind of thing, ordering the kind of weaponization of sexual violence, the way they might have ordered their fighters to be as shocking and brutal as possible in their attacks on, say, the uh, the people inhabiting these various kibbutzim that they attacked. And I believe it's kibbutz 
singular, kibbutzim, plural, right? And a kibbutz is this kind of communal little settlement, usually of a kind of agrarian nature, kind of like a little um, farming community, right, that you find in Israel. And sadly, as I understand it, the people living in these uh, kibbutzim are often kind of peacenik types who very well may, may you know, have been sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinian people. And these militants just went in and burned homes, burned people, killed parents in front of children, children in front of parents even shot dogs. And I know, uh, you know, I'm an animal lover. I especially love dogs. And I did see some footage that was released by the IDF, or it may have been POV footage that one of the militants took. But yeah, you see this dog come out as this uh, militant is walking through a neighborhood, through a kibbutz, and he just takes aim and shoots this dog dead in the middle of the street. And it seemed like a fairly large dog, but it wasn't being aggressive or anything. And I don't know if he shot it for the heck of it or if it was strategic, you know, take it out before it can raise an alarm or attack. I don't know. But yeah, as an animal lover, it was very disturbing. I know some of you are probably saying, how can you get all upset about an animal when all these brutal atrocities were being done to real human beings? And I know uh, we animal lovers are sometimes annoying, <laughs> but many of us are animal lovers. I think most people love animals. But anyway, that brings to mind these IDF interrogations I was watching on YouTube because the IDF had rounded up a fair amount of these militants and interrogated them. And I know some people, uh, I understand why people don't always trust the IDF. I myself, if you remember earlier, even mentioned or referenced some of the dubious quote-unquote evidence they had tried the showcase from that hospital. But at least regarding these interrogation videos they released, I was actually surprised by how professional and restrained or reserved the IDF interrogators were. So you'd have the interrogator across from them, you'd have the captured Hamas militant, and the interrogators weren't yelling at them or trying to intimidate them or browbeat them. They just spoke or asked questions in a very kind of mild-mannered or matter-of-fact way. What did you see when you entered the building? What did you do then? Then what did you do? Almost like they were trying to get the prisoner or captive to walk them through what they did instead of, you know, putting words in their mouths. And the captured militants definitely didn't seem scripted. If they were scripted, I mean, they deserve, you know, an Oscar. They, they seemed very natural. And one thing that kept coming to my mind is that old phrase, the banality of evil. When people commit heinous atrocities. I think there's almost a tendency to want to believe that there must be this almost cartoon villain behind it, this kind of diabolical figure that almost exudes evil. And yet these people were, these guys were kind of like schleps or schmucks. Don't know why I'm using so much Yiddish slang. But anyway, I mean, they were. They seemed like mostly young guys, maybe late teens, maybe 20s. 
and none of them necessarily seem like the brightest bulb or sharpest knife in the draw, if you get what I'm saying. A number of them said the reason why they had done it is because Hamas leaders had supposedly promised them an apartment and cash. I think they said they offered them $1,000 cash for every hostage they brought back. And uh, Shani Luke just came to mind again because I remember when I first watched those interrogation videos or heard that the goal may have been to bring back as many hostages as possible. And of course, I forget how many it was, but well over 200 hostages, right? I mean, they even took at least one infant. They took kids, the elderly, some of them Holocaust survivors. But I remember wondering... I imagine Hamas wanted the hostages to remain alive so they could use them as bargaining chips. And I wondered, why did they kill Shani Luke or Shani Luke? And I wondered if maybe she had fought back or something like that. But yeah, it's just awful. Um, But yeah, I just, her story haunts me. I think it might be because she was one of the first victims I saw when this was all unfolding, and her story just really it's really stuck with me. But I remember one of these captured Hamas fighters was kind of matter-of-factly walking the interrogator through what he had done. And he talks about, you know, entering a house, shooting someone. I'm trying to think if this was the same one or if I'm conflating two accounts. There was one where a guy sees a body inside a house that one of his compatriots, I suppose, had already killed. And he then shoots another couple of rounds into the body. And he was reprimanded reprimanded or dressed down by the leader of uh, the commander of this little Hamas unit for wasting ammunition. But one guy talked about being in a house, shooting someone, and then there was a little dog, and the interrogator asked him what he did, and he said he shot the little dog too. And I remember as a Chihuahua owner and an animal lover once, I'm like, not even the little dog was, why would, why would you kill a little dog, man? And I know once again, you're probably going, you're missing the point, Phil. They're killing people, they're killing children, and you're worried about the little dog. But some of you may have noticed that I haven't addressed one of the most just horrific claims regarding what Hamas supposedly did on October 7th. There was this story that, I mean, it's just insane, that they supposedly beheaded something like 40 babies, just the stuff of nightmares. But the reason why I haven't mentioned it until now is I think that claim has never been, uh, has never been vetted or confirmed. And it may even have been uh, possibly debunked. I'm not sure. Yeah, there's a CNN article dated October 12th. Israeli official says government cannot confirm babies were beheaded. While trying to quickly look into this just now, I found a factcheck.org article that says the claim that 40 babies were beheaded can supposedly be traced back to the reporting of an Israeli news correspondent by the name of Nicole Zedek. I guess in one clip she says something like 40 babies were killed and taken out on gurneys. In another clip she says babies were beheaded. And apparently these two different statements were conflated or combined and interpreted by people as meaning 40 babies were beheaded. 
And if that number 40 is accurate, I mean, that's horrific enough, beheaded or not. One murdered infant is an unspeakable atrocity, never mind 40. And this is from factcheck.org once again. At least 29 children were killed when Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, according to the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. In addition, about 30 children were taken hostage by Hamas, the Associated Press reported. And another claim that some people called into question was, um, I believe it was posted to Bibi Netanyahu, or Benjamin Netanyahu's official ex or formerly Twitter page, but it was images of what were purported to be the burned bodies of, I think, two infants. And I saw the images and they were very disturbing. The bodies were so badly disfigured that they almost looked like lumps in the vague shape of an infant. And I apologize once again because I know this is really dark stuff. And you had people on social media trying to suggest that the photos may have been manipulated, that either AI was used or they may have started out as a real image but were altered. There was this weird claim going around that it may have originally been a picture of burned puppies or just puppies or something that were then digitally manipulated. Uh, some people were saying that the images may have been real, but they weren't from October 7th. They were from some earlier tragedy or conflict. And I honestly don't know what to believe. Usually, if a news agency or a government released images like that, that were supposedly from an ongoing conflict or a tragedy that had recently happened, I'd give them the benefit of the doubt. And as long as there weren't any glaring or telltale signs of digital manipulation, I'd just assume the images were authentic. But given the kind of recent track record of the IDF, etc., I have to admit, I'm kind of somewhat skeptical of almost anything they put out now. But at the same time, we know Hamas did kill children that day. As I was reading earlier, uh, it's thought at least 29 children were killed by Hamas. And uh, we have survivor testimonies about children being killed in front of their parents. I was recently reading a story about a man whose twins, who's, I don't know how young they were, they looked like maybe adolescents, his twins were killed. And we know that Hamas had burned homes, burned people, so it's not a stretch to imagine that some of those children died by burning. Yeah, there's a BBC article from November 23rd. Gaza war, father of twins killed in Hamas attack, says he is broken by deaths. And it has a picture of them, and it gives their ages. They were 12 years old. And I was just mentioning how I don't really, you know, completely trust the IDF or Netanyahu. And I think it's safe to say he's not necessarily highly popular in Israel either. There's a Times of Israel article, and it's dated October 20th. But the headline reads, poll, 80% of Israelis say Netanyahu must take public responsibility for October 7th failures. And early on, people were talking about what a security failure this was and how Netanyahu should step down. 
But as the story continues to unfold and new developments emerge, we're starting to learn just how bad the negligence was. I think just within the past couple of weeks, we learned that apparently Israeli intelligence knew about the possibility of an attack like this for at least a year. And then just within the past couple of days, a story broke about how apparently Israeli intelligence knew about an impending attack and warned the IDF, and the IDF failed to inform the event organizers of the Nova Music Festival, and that apparently the IDF could have evacuated all the attendees in time, but didn't. And Haaretz is a paper I really like and trust, and they're an Israeli news uh, publication or outlet. And so here's a story from Haaretz dated December 5th. This massacre should have been prevented. Despite Israeli intelligence warnings about a Hamas attack, the army didn't evacuate the Nova Festival. Top defense officials held urgent consultations the night before October 7th about a possible Hamas attack, but no one in the IDF notified the Nova Festival organizers or the partygoers, hundreds of whom were mowed down, and for nine hours no one came to save them. So obviously Hamas are responsible for these horrific coordinated massacres and these atrocities. But on top of that, the victims were also failed by their government and their military leadership who had a duty to protect them and could have prevented this carnage and didn't. And to me, the negligence is blood boiling. And it's only natural to ask or wonder, you know, why didn't they act? And when the story broke that Israeli intelligence or the IDF knew about the possibility of such an attack for a year. Some people were suggesting that it may have just been arrogance or hubris. They didn't think Hamas could actually pull it off. But now that we know they actually had really, you know, they had strong intelligence of an impending attack to the point where they were having urgent meetings or something the night before the music festival. It makes you wonder, why didn't they act then? Was it just negligence, incompetence, or and this is really conspiratorial and I'm trying to tread carefully, or is it, as some people have suggested, there may have been people who wanted it to happen so they would have an excuse to launch this really aggressive campaign against Gaza. And for people who don't know the basic history surrounding the founding of the modern state of Israel, a big part of this long cyclical conflict has to do with land, with the struggle for land. And so now I'll finally get into my own layman's understanding, and I'm still learning about the topic, of the history of the founding of the modern state of Israel and the conflict or conflicts and events that preceded it and the cyclical conflict that's going on to this day. And so now we get to that controversial Z word, Zionism. And I have to admit, for most of my life, I think I had a basic misunderstanding of what Zionism even was. I tended to think of the word Zionist 
as a kind of anti-Semitic slur wielded mostly by conspiracy theorists. And in fairness, I think it is sometimes used as an anti-Semitic slur or as a kind of um, anti-Jewish dog whistle. But the word Zionist or Zionism actually refers to a kind of political movement or ideology that dates back to at least the 19th century. Zion is a biblical name for the Holy Land or Jerusalem specifically. And many of us might be familiar with, I believe it's Psalm 137, where it talks about how by the rivers of Babylon, um, the, I'll actually look it up. There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And I think this is a reference to the Babylonian captivity or exile. As we know, the Jewish people were conquered and displaced various times throughout history. Uh, as a people, they had a pretty hard go of it. There, of course, as I just mentioned, was the Babylonian captivity. And I would have mentioned the Exodus, but the historicity of the Exodus and the Jews in Egypt is a topic for another episode. And I think I actually did an episode on that a very long time ago. And if memory serves me right, it was a bit of a mess. And it's something I always wanted to revisit again. So I'll probably do an episode on that in the future. Then, of course, there were the Greeks, the Seleucid Empire, the Roman occupation, and I believe it was circa 70 AD when the Second Temple and uh, I believe most of Jerusalem was destroyed, razed. And I believe many Jews were taken into, into slavery uh, by the Romans. I think some were expelled, but there wasn't a complete expulsion of Jews uh, in the wake of the destruction of the Second Temple. But the Temple in Jerusalem, that was the center of Jewish spiritual life, of Jewish culture, and so the destruction of it definitely had a heavy impact on, uh, on Jewish culture and society. And I think it was in 132 A.D. or C.E. Common Era, you had the, uh, the Bar Kokhba revolt led by Simon Bar Kokhba, who many thought to be the, the Messiah. The Romans eventually put down the rebellion. I believe Bar Kokhba himself was killed in 135 A.D. And I think the rest of the rebels were either killed or taken into slavery. Many Jews in general were sold into slavery or deported, and the name of the country was changed. The Emperor Hadrian changed the name of the country from Judea to, I think it was Syria, Palestina, and Jerusalem was renamed and turned into a pagan city, and the Jews were forbidden to live there. And it should also be noted that I believe even before the destruction of the Second Temple, there were already Jews who had emigrated elsewhere into different parts of the Greco-Roman world. And I think for the most part, Jewish Roman citizens were treated fairly well, although I was recently reading, I believe, that there may have been a couple of periods where Jews were expelled or exiled from Rome for proselytizing or something to that effect early on. 
But in general, they were rel- I believe they were treated relatively well and uh, allowed to live like any other citizen. But following the defeated the defeated Bar Kokhba revolt, there was a persecution of Jews living in the Roman world. And this actually comes from the Jewish virtual library. In the years following the revolt, Hadrian discriminated against all Judeo-Christian sects, but the worst persecution was directed against religious Jews. He made anti-religious decrees forbidding Torah study, Sabbath observance, circumcision, Jewish courts, meeting in synagogues, and other ritual practices. Many Jews assimilated, and many sages and prominent men were martyred, including Rabbi Akiva. This age of persecution lasted throughout the remainder of Hadrian's reign until 138 CE. And so the Jews ended up a people living in diaspora, scattered around, removed from their homeland. And throughout medieval Europe, they were marginalized, persecuted. There were a number of pogroms and expulsions. And a lot of this was driven by these crude, anti-Semitic, bigoted ideas like uh, blood libel and that the Jews were responsible for killing Christ, even though Christ and his disciples and his mother and the people he, you know, uh, were all Jewish. Paul, formerly Saul, was Jewish. I think it's thought that three of the four gospel writers were probably Jewish. It's thought Luke was, uh, was a Gentile, a Greek physician, possibly Prior to the term Christian even coming about, the early followers of Christ would have been Jewish. It was essentially a Jewish movement. Just about every figure from the Old Testament that Christians admire, all the patriarchs, etc., Jewish. So blaming all Jews for the death of Jesus never made any sense to me, logically or morally. But this persecution of Jews in Europe actually brings us to the subject of Zionism. There was a rise in anti-Semitism in 19th century Europe, uh, especially in the Russian Empire. There was a series of really large-scale violent pogroms, these almost violent anti-Jewish riots. And it's thought that part of what may have sparked these pogroms is the fact that Imperial Russia, which previously uh, supposedly had uh, a relatively small Jewish population, suddenly absorbed or acquired these new territories that had a large Jewish population, or large Jewish populations, plural. And so it's thought that the sudden absorption of a large Jewish population, probably mixed with old-fashioned Uh, anti-Semitism may have been what resulted in this kind of violent anti-Jewish hysteria. And Jews trying to flee were even blocked from entering other parts of European Russia, either outright or under the condition that they deconvert from Judaism. And so in response to this growing anti-Semitism and the plight of Jews in Europe and in Russia, Zionism emerges in the late 19th century. And once again, Zion is, uh, or Zion, is a biblical term for the Holy Land or Jerusalem. And so Zionism is the 
idea or the goal of establishing a national homeland for the Jewish people. And the person who is considered kind of the father of modern Zionism is a man by the name of Theodor Herzl, a Hungarian Jewish journalist and political activist. And there were a number of suggestions as for where this Jewish homeland should be established, one of them, strangely enough, being Uganda. But Palestine was the more obvious and probably, safe to say, more desired choice since it roughly corresponds with the land that was ancient Israel. And it might seem strange, but as I understand it, early on, most Zionists were fairly secular, and there seems to be this divide where you had Jews who viewed being Jewish as a religious identity, and others who viewed it as more of an ethnic and potentially nationalistic identity. But from the get-go, there were religious, ultra-Orthodox Jews who opposed Zionism because they believe the Jews aren't supposed to return to Israel until the Messiah arrives or due to God's miraculous intervention. They believe the political founding of a modern state of Israel is an anti-Messianic act, that man isn't supposed to try to hasten these events on his own. And then you have other observant Jews, I think even certain kinds of Orthodox Jews, who try to reconcile Zionism with Orthodox Judaism, and they don't have any objections, or they might even see it as a, a duty for Jews to be proactive and to reestablish uh, their home in the Holy Land, etc. But it's interesting, it might be surprising to some, but it's actually not uncommon for ultra-Orthodox Jews to be pro-Palestine. And in fact, not that long ago, it may have been a few weeks ago, there was disturbing video that surfaced of Israeli police roughing up, really manhandling, ultra-Orthodox Jews. I believe the police thought they'd been hanging little Palestinian flags in their neighborhood, showing solidarity with Palestine. But yeah, it was, I mean, even so, why can't they, you know? But it was very disturbing to see these police throwing around the ultra-Orthodox Jews. But to return to the Zionist movement and the founding of the modern state of Israel, Members of the Zionist movement began to leave Europe and settle in, not Israel, at this point it was still Palestine. And this is where the British come in. In 1917, during World War I, Britain occupied Palestine, which had up until that point been under Ottoman rule. In 1920, the League of Nations would approve or grant Britain a mandate for Palestine allowing Britain to officially govern the region. But if we jump back three years, once again to 1917, Britain publicly releases a statement known as the Balfour Declaration, named after British statesman Arthur Balfour. It declared the British government's support for the establishment of a quote-unquote national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. And so, even before they were granted the mandate, it seems Britain already had designs on Palestine. The Balfour Declaration was couched as being sympathetic to the Jewish people and the Zionist cause, but it may be the case that it had more to do with cynical geopolitical calculations 
Although, like today, there were evangelical Christians who were quote-unquote sympathetic to the Zionist movement because they believed the return of the Jewish people to the Holy Land would hasten the return of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Did it just sound like I cursed there? My apologies, I'm just saying his name. But the British had desired a lasting foothold in the region, a kind of strategic outpost, for lack of a better word, um, populated by an allied people. As Ronald Storrs had put it, and he was a British official, he had governed over various occupied areas of the Middle East, including Jerusalem, I believe. And I'm actually quoting the Irish Times here. I was familiar with the quote, but I wanted to find it so I could read it verbatim. As he put it, a little loyal Jewish Ulster in a sea of potentially hostile Arabism. And as ludicrous and ignorant as it might seem now, apparently anti-Semitic beliefs about world Jewry were also a factor. Balfour and others believe that the supposed reaches of Jewish power and influence could be of use to them in the wider war effort. The waves of Zionist immigration continued. The population of Palestine had been about 94% Arab-Palestinian, with a small Jewish-Arab minority. It should be noted a relatively small Jewish presence had persisted in the Middle East since antiquity. By 1948, the Arab majority would drop from around 94 to 65% in Palestine due to the ongoing influx of Jewish settlers. As the number of settlers swelled, so did tensions between the indigenous Arab population and their new neighbors, and conflicts and skirmishes began to break out between the two sides. And the British may have found that they had bitten off more than they could chew. Not only did they have to struggle to try to quell hostilities between Jew and Arab, but they ended up having to deal with an uprising of Arab-Palestinians who desired both independence and a limiting or end of large-scale Jewish immigration and land sales to settlers. They would also have to contend with Jewish insurgency in the form of a paramilitary campaign carried out against them by underground Zionist groups. A famous example is the 1946 bombing of the King David Hotel, which housed the central offices and military headquarters of the British. The bombing killed 91 people and injured 46 others. The victims were not only Brits, but also Arabs and a number of fellow Jews. The British, who would relinquish their mandate and pull out of the region, had failed to resolve the hostilities between the warring Palestinian Arabs and Jewish settlers, and turned to, or handed the problem off to, the newly formed United Nations, which in 1947 suggested a partition plan for the region. The resolution would provide both sides with its own independent state. 56% of Palestine would go to the Jewish settlers, and 42% would go to the Palestinians, with the remaining 2% making up an international zone comprised of Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and the adjoining area. Arab leadership, including the Arab League and Higher Arab Committee, rejected the plan, complaining that Palestinian Arabs were being given a smaller territory despite being the people indigenous to the area and having twice the population size. The Jews, of course, also claimed an ancestral connection to the land. 
but the Arabs had been living there since at least the 7th century. And just a side note, but I think it's relevant, I was recently reading a National Geographic article about the shared genetic ancestry of Jews and Arabs, and here's a little quote or blurb. The researchers also compared the ancient DNA with that of modern populations and found that most Arab and Jewish groups in the region owe more than half of their DNA to Canaanites and other peoples who inhabited the ancient Near East, an area encompassing much of the modern Levant, Caucasus, and Iran. And I guess the point I'm trying to make is I just think it's sad or ironic that we have these two warring groups stuck in this brutal cycle of violence when they actually have, to some degree, a shared genetic lineage, as we all do. We're all human beings. We're all members of the human race uh, out of Africa and all that. And we should all be striving to see the humanity in each other and not surrender to tribalism, you know? But speaking of tribalism, civil war broke out and would be followed by what's known as the First Arab-Israeli War, which is seen as having formally started with the end of the British Mandate at midnight on the 14th of May in 1948. The British-trained Zionist settlers won, claiming roughly, in the end, 80% of the region. Technically, I think it was 70-something percent, but it was roughly 80% of the region, as opposed to the 56% laid out in the partition plan. And I just looked it up. It was technically 78%. The claiming of this extra land involved the mass expulsion and flight of roughly 750,000 Palestinians. Over 500 Palestinian villages were destroyed and depopulated by Zionist militias. This violent mass displacement would become known as the Nakba, Arabic for catastrophe. And this next subject is rather touchy or sensitive, and it's something that's still being debated. And I'm referring to claims that Jewish settlers or, you know, Zionists committed atrocities during the civil war leading up to the first Arab-Israeli war and during and after the Nakba. There's one famous or infamous incident in particular, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but it's Der Yassin or Yassin, uh, the Der Yassin massacre. And I'll read a little bit from Britannica. I was trying to find a relatively objective source. I'll just read a couple of excerpts. Der Yassin or Yassin Palestinian Arab village that was located just west of Jerusalem on April 9, 1948, on the eve of the Arab-Israeli War of 1948-49, the village was destroyed by Jewish paramilitary forces in an attack that inspired fear and panic throughout the region. And so I'll jump down a bit. On April 9, 1948, at 4.30 a.m., forces of the Ergen Zavai Lumi, probably... Um, mispronouncing that as well, and I think that's the same group that was responsible for the bombing of the King David Hotel, 
and the Stern Gang, and there's something about that name, the Stern Gang, also called Lahai, I think it is, so many names I'm probably mispronouncing, attacked the village. About 100 people were killed, although contemporary accounts reported a higher number. At a press conference convened later in the day, a spokesman for the paramilitary groups claimed that control of the hill was necessary to provide cover for the route between Jerusalem and the coast. And it seems to be accepted that among those killed were women and children, but as you might imagine, the nature of what exactly went down is kind of spun or painted differently, depending on which side you're talking to. Some painted as just a cold-blooded massacre by paramilitary groups. Others will try to justify some of what happened by saying there was armed resistance from some of the villagers, which there was or that there was confusion and fear among the uh, Zionist paramilitary fighters. And some of the Arab men may have strategically been disguising their, themselves as women, leading to actual women and girls being shot. But some of it is pretty bad, no matter how you spin it. And I believe there are actually Israeli documents that came to light several years ago and here's a Haaretz article that I've read before. And it's entitled Testimonies from the Censored Der Yasin or Yasin Massacre. They piled bodies and burned them. A young fellow tied to a tree and set on fire. A woman and an old man shot in the back. Girls lined up against the wall and shot with a submachine gun. The testimonies collected by filmmaker... Netta Shoshani about the massacre in Der Yasin or Yasin are difficult to process even 70 years after the fact. And some of the people involved were actually interviewed or quotes from them were in these documents. So here's some testimony in the form of a letter from one guy who was involved. Further along in the letter, he describes in detail his part in the massacre that took place there. This was the first time in my life that at my hands and before my eyes, Arabs fell. In the village, I killed an armed Arab man and two Arab girls of 16 or 17 who were helping the Arab who was shooting. I stood them against a wall and blasted them with two rounds from the Tommy gun, he wrote, describing how he carried out the execution of the girls with a submachine gun. And it continues, along with that, he tells about looting in the village with his buddies after it was occupied. And here's a quote. We confiscated a lot of money and silver and gold jewelry fell into our hands, he wrote. He concludes the letter with the words, this was a really tremendous operation. And it is with reason that the left is vilifying us again. And if I jump down, the article says, Four of the fighters were killed and dozens were wounded. The number of Arab inhabitants who were killed there and the circumstances of their deaths has been disputed for many years. But most researchers state that 110 inhabitants of the village among them, women, children, and elderly people were killed there. Then there's some quotes from a commander who was there. I guess he was interviewed a few weeks before his death back in 2009. And he says, They ran like cats, related the commander of the operation, Yehoshua Zettler, I believe. 
I won't tell you that we were there with kid gloves on. House after house, we're putting in explosives and they are running away. An explosion and move on, an explosion and move on. And within a few hours, half the village isn't there anymore, he said. And then in the paragraph after that, he goes into... It sounds like he was upset by the way his men... He admits his men made some mistakes. And he was upset by the way they piled up bodies and burned them. Uh, he says the bodies began to quote-unquote stink. And so I don't know if they burned the bodies because they were giving off an unpleasant odor, the corpses, or if the odor was caused by burning the bodies. But it seems like he was upset by the action for whatever reason. I'm more disturbed by atrocities visited upon the living, but I also think you should respect the dead. And I'm not familiar with the local, say, Muslim funerary customs of that area. And I actually just looked it up, and perhaps somewhat surprisingly, it comes from the National Institutes of Health. Muslims are always buried, never cremated. It is a religious requirement that the body be ritually washed and draped before burial, which should be as soon as possible after death. That actually reminds me of, uh, that's similar in some ways to Jewish funerary practices, right? Or, or burial practices. So assuming the inhabitants of that village were Muslim, which most likely they were, there are other religious groups in the Middle East, in the Arab world, you know, there's a Christian minority, there's Druze, even as I was saying before, there's Arab Jews, but I'm, I'm assuming they were Muslim. And if so, given Muslim burial or funerary practices, it sounds like burning the bodies is a big no-no. So yeah, if that's the case, that's pretty bad. And then there's some interesting testimony from a man by the name of Professor Mordecai Gishon or Gitchin, a lieutenant colonel in the Israeli Defense Forces Reserves, who was a Haganah intelligence officer sent to Der Yassin or Yassin when the battle ended. And here's a quote. To me, it looked a bit like a pogrom, said Gishon, who died about a year ago. And this article, once again, was uh, published in 2017. If you're occupying an army position, it's not a pogrom, even if a hundred people are killed. But if you are coming into a civilian locale and dead people are scattered around in it, then it looks like a pogrom. When the Cossacks burst into Jewish neighborhoods, then that should have looked something like this. There was a feeling of considerable slaughter, and it was hard for me to explain it to myself as having been done in self-defense. My impression was more of a massacre than anything else. If it is a matter of killing innocent civilians, then it can be called a massacre. And there's another Heretz article that I had already read, and I returned to it, and it's now paywalled. I guess you only get so many, uh, so many free articles. And it's entitled, Burying the Nakba, How Israel Systematically Hides Evidence of 1948 Expulsion of Arabs. Since early last decade, defense ministry teams have scoured local archives and removed troves of historic documents to conceal proof of the Nakba. And I think it was in this article where it talks about other supposed atrocities, possibly also, I believe it was three cases or incidents of rape, one of a, I think at least one of a teenage girl. 
And I believe the Nakba's consider a matter of historical fact. I don't think any serious scholar would deny it happened. What some people might do, and I think I've heard right-wing pro-Israel types say there was no Nakba, it was just war. They'll admit that, yes, that many people were displaced or combination of being displaced and fleeing, but they just see it as, hey, we went to war, you guys lost, we took the land, you know? So I think most people, even people on the pro-Israel side, admit it happened. They just might not refer to it as the Nakba, and they might try to deny that certain atrocities were committed by Zionist troops. And before I forget, while we're on the topic of the Der Yassin, I think it's Yassin, massacre, even though I say only the loss of one innocent life is you know one too many, but even though relatively speaking, there are only roughly a little over a hundred victims, which seems relatively small compared to even the numbers then, where I think you had like at the end of the first Arab-Israeli war, I think it was something like 6,000 dead Israelis and between 8,000 and 15,000 dead Arabs. And I'm getting those numbers from Jewish Voice for Peace. If I go to an EDU site, University of Central Arkansas, it says more than 6,000 Israeli Jews, including 4,000 soldiers and 2,000 civilians, and more than 10,000 Arab soldiers and civilians were killed. So similar numbers, but I wanted to check out a second source just to try to see more clearly what percentage of the losses were civilian as opposed to military. But to get back on track, so the point I'm trying to make is, compared to those numbers, 100 or 105 uh, might seem like a small number, but I believe that massacre still had a really big effect and played a pivotal role in the conflict. It supposedly had a big psychological effect on the inhabitants of other Arab villages who were afraid that they would befall a similar fate and could suddenly be massacred at any time. And so whether or not it was part of the intention of the massacre, it ended up having a kind of psychological warfare component that sent ripples of fear and concern throughout the Arab community. And as you might imagine, Arab leadership was none too pleased at what appeared to be this brazen massacre of Arab villagers. And leadership of the Haganah, which was um, a Jewish, you know, prominent Jewish military organization and the Jewish Agency for Palestine, sent a letter of apology to King Abdullah of Jordan apologizing. And not only did they apologize for the act, but I believe they publicly condemned it too. But King Abdullah wasn't exactly happy with the apology and warned that there would be, in quotes, terrible consequences if similar incidents took place. And I'm not trying to bring up the Nakba or these possible atrocities that may have been committed by Zionist fighters, Jewish settlers, whatever term you want to use, to demonize Israelis. If there's any takeaway from this episode, I hope it's the message that no people or ethnic group should be vilified or demonized. Once again, as kind of kumbaya, corny as it might sound, 
we're all human beings, and there's no ethnic group that is just inherently evil or bad. Every group is susceptible to tribalism. Every group has the potential for committing atrocities and persecuting other groups. And I'm not trying to paint one side as angels and the other side as devils. Violence is cyclical. I believe several days after the Deir Yassin massacre, Arabs ambushed in retaliation a Jewish medical convoy, and I think nearly 80 people were killed, most of them medical staff. So sadly, as is often the case in history, warring sides end up getting locked in a brutal cycle of violence. And another example of that is, following the Nakba and the end of the First Arab-Israeli War, there was a persecution of Jews in Arab countries. There were very old Jewish communities who had lived for centuries peacefully in Arab lands. We might refer to them as Arab Jews, although I think that term is sometimes contested. Some are also referred to as Mizrahi Jews. And these are basically indigenous Jews who had never left the Middle East, but now suddenly found themselves persecuted following, once again, the Nakba, the first Arab-Israeli war. And uh, hundreds of thousands of these Jews who had been living in the Middle East for centuries, if not millennia, were now found themselves refugees. Some either fled persecution or were expelled. And I think a great deal of them were actually accepted into Israel. And I was just curious, and this is from Wikipedia for what it's worth, but it says nearly half of all Israeli Jews are descended from Jews who made Aliyah from Europe. And I believe Aliyah means returning or journeying to the, uh, the Holy Land of Israel, leaving the diaspora and, and returning to Israel. Well, around the same number are descended from Jews who made Aliyah from Arab countries, Iran, Turkey, and Central Asia. Over 200,000 are or are descended from Ethiopian and Indian Jews. Yeah, so it sounds like roughly half the Jews living in Israel are or are descended from Jews from surrounding Arab and Middle Eastern lands, so Jews who never left the Middle East. And I don't know how many of those may be refugees or the descendants of refugees who fled or were expelled from Arab lands following uh, the first Arab-Israeli war. And like I said, I don't want to demonize either side. If anything, once again, I want to emphasize our common humanity. But part of the reason I brought up things like the Zionist movement and the indigenous Arab Palestinians who had been living here since at least the 7th century, losing their land, uh, the Nakba, etc., was to try to make the point that this conflict didn't just occur in a vacuum. Or it's not like the Palestinians are just these savages incapable of living civilly with their neighbors and, you know, attacking them for no reason. These are people who lost land and were displaced by settlers. They basically went from inhabiting all of Palestine to being relegated to the little areas we know as the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. And Israel would continue to claim more land over time. 
if we jump to 1967 with the Six-Day War, Israel also claimed the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, along with, I think, the Syrian Golan Heights and the Egyptian Sinai Peninsula. And I've been listening to a lot of scholars talk about the history of this conflict, and one of them, I know some people find him quite controversial, is Norman Finkelstein, who I like and I admire his passion. I do disagree with some of his moral conclusions, I guess I'll say, and I'll get to that, but the reason I bring him up now is um, I remember him saying that according to international law, you're not supposed to be able to acquire new land through warfare or conquest. And so in such cases, the land is referred to as occupied territory. By international law, you don't have legal rights to it. You're simply occupying it. And that's why, say, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip are considered occupied territories and why we say that the Palestinians are being occupied. And then most of us have probably heard about the expansion, which I think is also illegal according to international law, the expansion of settlements in the West Bank. Palestinians have been losing even more land because Israel or the Israeli government is allowing settlers to come in and um, claim property that belong to Palestinians. And they will argue, oh, it doesn't really belong to them kicking people out of their houses, bulldozing houses. And a lot of these settlers are like guys from the U.S., from uh, New York or Jersey, or people from other parts of the world that, that have converted. And you can see video online of Palestinians being kicked out of their own homes and arguing with the person who is now occupying their home. And often the guy will have a New York accent or something, you know. And I remember watching one video and the guy who was taking over this person's house is like, hey, if I didn't take it, someone else would. And here's a little blurb about settlements from Al Jazeera. And I know some people might consider that a biased source. But what it says here is also my understanding. Are Israeli settlements legal under international law? No, all settlements and outposts are considered illegal under international laws as they violate the Fourth Geneva Convention, which bans an occupying power from transferring its population to the area it occupies. And I just want to state, none of this, I can't believe this episode is almost two hours long now, and so the beginning of the episode where I was talking about Hamas's coordinated attacks on October 7th. That seems like a world away now, another lifetime. But I clearly stated my disdain for Hamas and their actions. And so everything I've been talking about, whether it be the Nakba, you know, mass displacement of the Palestinian people, the continued loss of land to Israel, etc., none of that justifies the actions of Hamas. None of that justifies the brutal murder of civilians, the killing of women and children, the possible weaponization of sexual assault or sexual violence. None of that. And once again, you know, we're talking about the actions of 
the Israeli government. And no people are a monolith. There's plenty of people in Israel, as I said earlier, it seems like the vast majority at least think that Netanyahu needs to publicly take responsibility for the horrendous security failure that allowed October 7th to happen. And there are many Israeli people who sympathize with the Palestinian people. Um, there are even human rights groups like, uh, I, I think it's Bet Salem within Israel that fight for the rights of Palestinian people. There's many Jewish people in the States and around the world who have been protesting for a ceasefire, for peace, for the fair treatment of the Palestinian people. So we should never demonize a whole group for the actions of its leadership. And I know throughout this episode, I've talked so much about the founding of the state of Israel, the modern state of Israel, and I don't think I ever actually gave the final date for it, you know, for its founding. But I'll do that now, and this is from the U.S. Department of State. On May 14, 1948, David Ben-Gurion, the head of the Jewish agency, proclaimed the establishment of the state of Israel. U.S. President Harry S. Truman recognized the new nation on the same day. And I have to admit that for years I had this misconception, and I think it's one a lot of people share, that the modern state of Israel was founded as a reaction to the Holocaust. And there were some Holocaust survivors that settled in Israel before its official declaration as a state in 1948. But the vast majority of Holocaust survivors that would eventually settle in Israel didn't do so until after it had already officially been declared a state. And part of the reason for that is, and we've probably all heard these just horrible kind of heartbreaking stories about boatloads of Holocaust survivors looking for a safe haven, being turned away by various nations or countries, including the U.S. I just want to jump in to quickly correct myself. I should have said Jewish refugees fleeing Nazi persecution instead of Holocaust survivors, because this was before the end of the war. And ironically, the British also turned them away from what was then still Palestine. And I say ironically because remember the Balfour Declaration and the fact that the British had declared that it supported or wanted to help the Jewish people establish a national homeland in Palestine. And of course, my opinion is that had more to do with geopolitical machinations than it did genuine sympathy for the Jewish people. But I think the reason why they were turned away was because the British at the time were already dealing with high tensions uh, between these two warring parties, the Jewish settlers and the um, indigenous Arab population. And they were already dealing with both Jewish insurgency and Arab revolts. And, uh, of course, the, um, the Arab population was already complaining about the high levels of immigration and the loss of land, uh, land being sold off to settlers. 
And I'll read a little bit from this Australian website that is dedicated, I think, to information about the Holocaust. And it says, after the war, some 230,000 Jewish refugees and concentration camp survivors were held as displaced persons in camps in Europe. Most of the surviving Jews were unable and unwilling to return to their pre-war homes in Europe because of the prevalence of violent anti-Semitism. Some nations, including Australia, were prepared to accept a small number of Jewish survivors, but the door remained closed in most countries, including the United States, which were seeking to recover from the war effort. Most Jewish survivors, therefore, sought the right to return instead to the historical national home of the Jewish people and then former Palestine. Britain was anxious to protect its Middle East interests and maintain favor with the Arab world. The British authorities continued to use force to turn back boatloads of Jewish refugees from then former Palestine and restrict Jewish immigration into the country. A Jewish revolt broke out as a result. Arab revolts against Jews and the British had begun as early as 1920 and raged in 1921, 1929, and again between 1936 and 1939. And eventually the British said, enough of this. Like I'm about to say about this episode, I will probably wrap it up soon. Hashtag colonialism. Uh, but I maybe I'll end with more thoughts on Norman Finkelstein. So I do really like Norman Finkelstein. I think he's a principled guy. I think he's very uh, a very passionate guy. And he's been researching the history of this conflict and kind of fighting for the Palestinian people or, or fighting to bring attention to their plight for most of his adult life. And I think he's nearing 70 now. The one area where I disagree with him is uh, it, it's very strange because I've seen him interviewed multiple times and he'll be asked about Hamas, whether or not he condemns Hamas and their actions, etc., and he said something I thought was strange, where he's kind of, uh, his mentor was Noam Chomsky. And he said he likes to turn to him when he's having or experiencing a quote-unquote moral quandary. But that his old mentor, Noam Chomsky, for whatever reason, hasn't been available. And so he was left to wrestle morally with what to conclude about Hamas's actions on October 7th for himself. And I should also mention, and this comes into play, that both his parents are concentration camp survivors, and he often describes his parents as, figuratively, they're both deceased, as kind of looking over his shoulders while he's working, kind of guiding him. If it was meant literally, that'd kind of be like an episode of Creep Show. But anyway, I don't mean to be poking fun, and uh, I'm just being silly. Uh, I've been at this for so long. But yes, he considers his parents or their memory as kind of like a guiding force in his life. And once again, when he was kind of wrestling with what kind of moral conclusion to draw regarding the actions of Hamas on October 7th. He said he turned to the story of Nat Turner, who was a slave who led a slave rebellion here in America. And it was a very bloody and gruesome rebellion. 
And not only did the slaves involved in the rebellion target white men, they also targeted and killed women and children, including infants. And I'm just looking online here. It says between 55 and 65 people killed, making it um, the deadliest slave revolt in U.S. history. And I guess Finkelstein was saying that people had assumed that the killing of women and children, even infants, was probably a kind of spur of the moment thing where they were caught up in the heat of their anger towards their oppressors, etc. But I guess he was saying people have been rethinking it, and it turns out that it appears it was a calculated tactic that Nat Turner and the leaders of the rebellion had decided on beforehand. And so Finkelstein says he can denounce the atrocities, and he says he does recognize that atrocities were committed on October 7th. But just like he can't or won't denounce Nat Turner, he won't denounce the young Hamas fighters who carried out those actions because he views, in both cases, these are people who were oppressed and who knows what he would do in that situation. If you were oppressed and mistreated for years and years and finally got a chance to break free and lash out, he says, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. Who knows if I wouldn't have, if I wouldn't do the same thing under those conditions. And don't get me wrong, I can kind of see what he's saying. And there's a part of me that reluctantly, I have to say, is able to imagine someone who commits a heinous or antisocial act, whether it's, you know, a mugging, a murder, an act of terrorism, and say, you can probably go backwards through that person's life and see, you know, trace back a kind of line of cause and effect that led them to where they were willing to commit that act. And once again, in fairness to Finkelstein, he does seem to at least denounce the atrocities, or at least I'm going from memory, I believe he did, or at the very least, he at least recognizes that the actions were atrocities and that atrocities took place and that atrocities are a bad thing. And the part where his parents come in, he says he remembers that until their dying day, his parents basically hated Germans. And he even asked them once, it was either his father or mother, what they thought of the bombing of German civilians, say, uh, as I was talking about earlier, Dresden. I don't know if that's the specific bombing campaign he was referring to, but um, he said his, his parents had the mentality that if we're going to die, then we're going to take as many of them as we can with us. So he says he doesn't think it's a good thing, but his parents didn't seem to have much sympathy for German civilians after everything they went through and that he wouldn't dare take that from them. He said his parents had a right to hate the people of their oppressors. And he says that he thinks Palestinians have a right to hate 
you know, the people of their oppressors or their oppressors. And I'm paraphrasing, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think I did a fair job of capturing the gist there. Me personally, I mean, I believe in coming out without hesitation and strongly, without pause, denouncing atrocities, war crimes, uh, you know, the killing of civilians, the killing of women and children, the use of sexual violence. That should be as strongly as possible denounced without hesitation. And as far as denouncing people, there's a humanistic part of me that's able to say even the person who commits or a person who commits the most vile act imaginable, they're probably not 100% bad. There's probably positive aspects to them. Maybe they love their mother. Maybe they love their little sister. Maybe they're kind to animals or whatever, right? And maybe they have lived a life of misfortune. But I think at the end of the day, when people commit some of the most vile acts possible, atrocities that shock the moral conscience, that not only do we have to condemn their actions, but we have to, and I don't even necessarily know what it means to condemn them. You know, I think it means, for me at least, and I'm not saying we have to be barbarians and skin them alive or draw and quarter them in the public square, but we have to say, at least in this regard, you have been a vile human being who is, is worthy of condemnation. And if you want, you can morally philosophize about how did they get to that point? Um, does the person they were up until that point is that person deserving of sympathy? The child who they were that grew up in oppressive conditions, etc. And I think maybe a good example is Charles Manson. His mother was a prostitute. He had a horrible upbringing. I think his mother abused him. And uh, he grew up in the prison system. And uh, I think he had been molested. I believe it's alleged he had even been raped while in a boys' school. And so, yeah, most of us would probably say that young Charles Manson, that child, deserves all the sympathy in the world. He never had a chance. But once he starts ordering people to go into people's homes and, and butcher them, then the sympathy tap's going to run dry and you have to be held accountable and publicly denounced for your actions. And I have to admit, I'm agnostic on free will. You could probably get into a free will discussion about, you know, does someone like that really never have a chance? Um, is there any point where they're, where they could have made the right decision and didn't, you know, that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, we can't live in a society that permits atrocities, that allows human beings to visit some of the most nightmarish behavior possible on other human beings. And I'm not trying to suggest that Norman Finkelstein thinks atrocities should be punished. Uh, absolutely not. I'm just saying that when atrocities or these extreme moral transgressions do take place, they and the perpetrators should be 
denounced as strongly as possible. And I also want to clarify something else. When I was talking about Norman Finkelstein's parents, I may have accidentally been somewhat uncharitable. I was talking about Finkelstein's point that they, and the way I couched it was, had a right to hate the people of their oppressors. I think the point he was trying to make is, after everything they had been through, it was hard for them to distinguish civilians from the system and particular individuals that were oppressing them. And he recognized that that's not good, but I think he felt it wasn't his place after everything they had been through to try to tell them they shouldn't feel that way. But getting back to condemning or denouncing people for atrocities, I think the same should go for not only terrorists, but when a powerful nation commits war crimes. Once again, we're up to about 15,000 dead in Gaza, the majority of them women and children. I think roughly 1.7 or 1.8 million people displaced. If we find out or can prove that any of this was intentional, that they were intentionally targeting civilians and intentionally displacing millions of people and destroying thousands upon thousands of homes, I think people should be tried. I'd like to see Netanyahu stand trial both for his negligence regarding uh, the October 7th attack and for the thousands upon thousands of dead civilians in Gaza. And I feel kind of naive saying if we if we can prove that any of this was intentional, because I mean, how can you only be targeting Hamas and end up with, you know, 15,000 dead Gazans, most of them women and children. And I think the million-dollar question is, will there ever be peace between Israel and Palestine? Yeah, this conflict has been going on so long. And I'm reminded of, uh, there was this episode of the late Anthony Bourdain show. I'm trying to think if it was No Reservations, which was on the Travel Channel, right? And then after that, he did, was it Parts Unknown on CNN? But it was an episode of one of his shows in which he visits both Israel and Palestine. And a lot of people were reacting to it on YouTube not that long ago. And I kind of like reaction channels or videos when people react to movies I really like or something like that. Because it's almost like I get a chance to vicariously experience the film or TV show all over again without being bored just watching a movie I've already seen multiple times by myself. There's something that breathes new life into it or, or makes it seem fresh again when you're watching someone else's reaction to it. But yeah, so I was watching people react to that episode of Anthony Bourdain's show. And in it, he sits down and eats with Israelis. He sits down and eats with Palestinians. And there was even this one really cool blended Palestinian couple. I think one of the spouses was a Jewish Israeli and one was a Muslim Palestinian. And, uh, you know, love won the day. They basically made their families deal with it. But I think they may have chose to live in Palestine. It may have had something to do, I forget, with 
laws concerning interfaith marriages in Israel or something like that. Um, don't hold me to that. I'm not completely sure. And uh, I think with the exception of one or two settlers he ate with, where you can tell even he was aggravated and upset, and he was trying to question them about anti-Palestinian graffiti and the treatment of Palestinians by settlers, etc. With the exception of a couple of uh, <laughs> of one or two settlers he ate with, the Israelis were really cool and he enjoyed the food. The Palestinians were really cool and he enjoyed the food, you know? And it just, uh, and when you watch someone sit down and eat with real people like that, it reminds you that we really all, really all are just human beings and we all have our own story and I know it sounds very kumbaya again, but if there ever is peace between Israel and Palestine, I think it will take a movement of the Palestinian and Israeli people, just the good-hearted, normal people, wanting to recognize their common humanity and wanting peace. And it will also take leadership on both sides that, and I know all of this is much easier said than done, that are willing to take the necessary steps to achieve a lasting peace. And right now, I don't know if you could have worse leadership on either side. On the one hand, you have Hamas, and on the other hand, you have Netanyahu and, and his Likud party. I don't know, I don't think either one wants a lasting peace. I think we're living in historic times right now. It might sound hyperbolic, but other people have referred to this as a as possibly a second Nakba. Where in the original Nakba was it like 700, 750,000 Palestinians were displaced. Right now, as I said earlier, 1.7 or 1.8 million are displaced, and we have a mountain of dead children, 6,000 dead children. 15,000 dead. Um, I think that's that's not counting Hamas fighters. Um, most of that 15,000, once again, you're probably sick of hearing me say it, is women and children. It's me from the future jumping in again to correct myself. I believe, contrary to what me from the past just said, or myself from the past, the Gazan Health Ministry doesn't distinguish or differentiate between civilians and fighters. And I imagine it's not because they're trying to play games or be deceptive. They're probably just trying to accurately track the death toll in general. And even if that or those numbers do include some fallen Hamas militants or fighters, it's still believed that the vast majority of those killed in Gaza have been civilians, mostly women and children, 70-something percent. But we live in an internet age now where you can't hide anything from the world, and it's harder and harder to spin things, you know, to spin a narrative that suits your own political agenda but denies reality on the ground. Every night it seems like there's these Israeli spokespeople or officials or talking heads making the media rounds, and people are laughing at them because they can see right through their bullshit. So once again, we live in a different age. We live in a me pardon my language, by the way. First time I swore this episode, it's over two hours long. But once again, we live in a modern age where 
everyone has a supercomputer with a camera in it in their pocket, and we're all connected to the web. And it's much harder for uh, you know politicians or spin doctors to try to pull the wool over people's eyes and wag the dog or you know uh, do damage control. I think it's one of the more positive aspects of the internet and social media. It's getting harder for people in power to lie, at least convincingly, because we're all connected and we all see what's actually going on in the world. But I've reached the point where I'm just rambling, and I apologize. Over two hours. Is anyone actually going to listen to this whole thing? I hope so. But as always, thank you everyone for listening. I won't even do the shameless plugs right now. I just want to go to bed. So until next time, and I apologize that this episode was at least a week late.